Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Well, my name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. It's my privilege to finish off a jam-packed sermon with God's Word. Um, so thank you very much, Monica and Lily, for your testimony. A wonderful journey. You've traveled with your ups and downs, but isn't it joyous to know that you are safe in the Savior's hands? Um, so what wonderful good news. So let me just open up with, in some prayer. Lord, we thank you for this special time. We know it's been long, Lord, but we pray that you would allow us to focus on your word as you open it to us, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the many visitors that have been brought through the doors today, Lord. And we know, Lord, providentially that you have aligned this sermon with this baptism service and with the men and women and boys and girls that were meant to walk through this door today. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work and that you would speak to each of us and challenge each of us in our walk with you. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as we've seen from our overview video, we are working our way through the Malachi series and specifically the disputes that are occurring between Malachi, sorry, between God and the nation of Israel. These disputes play out a pattern of God's view on one side and Israel's view on the other. God has one view. I have loved you, he says. The people have another view. How? How have you loved us? God says, you have despised my name and dishonored me. And the people on the other side say, how have we despised you? God has an eternal view, whereas our view is just very temporal and the here and the now. This to and fro between Israel and God occurs over and over throughout Malachi. Chapters 3 and 4 are the close of this book and the closure of the Old Testament. It would be over 400 years before the Lord would speak again to his people. And these last two chapters of Malachi begin to set the scene for the first and second coming of Jesus. The closing of Malachi weaves the dual topics of mercy and judgment into this prophecy. It is similar to the closure of the New Testament book of Revelation, where John points forward to Christ's second coming, final judgment, and a new heaven, and a new earth. So although a portion of Malachi 3 deals with tithing, giving, and robbing God, I've recently done a sermon on generosity and giving as part of our values series. And I'd encourage you to go and listen to this if you want to know more. So I've instead elected to focus our time together this morning on the topic of judgment and heaven. This is what Malachi deals with in 3 and 4. I'm hopeful that it will set a foundation for Lachlan as he closes off Malachi next week on the topic of being ready for judgment. Let me start by sharing a story from the life of Stephen Curtis Chapman. Some of you might know who he is. He's an award-winning Christian artist with a number of popular Christian songs. Stephen and his wife have three biological children, as well as three adopted daughters from China. One of them grew up to be a vivacious five-year-old girl named Maria. In May 2008, Maria was playing on the jungle gym in the front yard. She wanted to get up on the monkey bars, but couldn't quite reach them. 
Just then, she saw her 17-year-old brother pull into the driveway. He'll help me up, she shouted to her sister, and then raced over to his car. Maria's brother failed to see the little figure of his sister running toward him, and to his horror, he accidentally ran over her. The family rushed Maria, broken and bleeding, to the hospital, but despite all of the efforts of the doctors, she died in the emergency room. In Mary Beth Chapman's autobiography, Choosing to See, she writes some very powerful words describing this scene, when the family are gathered around Maria's little body in the hospital. She says, somehow, in that unthinkable moment, it became clear to Stephen and me that we were standing at the very door of heaven, placing our little girl carefully into the arms of Jesus, desperately trusting that she would be safe there until we could come and join her. In an attempt to recover from Maria's death, the family went to Disneyland. They kept getting smacked with memories of Maria everywhere they went. They were struck, stuck in a grief that seemed like it would never change. This set the stage for tension throughout their trip. After a particularly heated argument between Stephen and his wife, Stephen left his family at the restaurant and went for a walk, crying and praying. He was standing on the second level of the restaurant, staring at a lake of water and praying, Lord, when are you coming back? If it's not in the next half hour, I'm not going to make it. This is so hard, and we're all at odds with each other because we're hurting so bad. Just then, a little girl came skipping up to Stephen. She was by herself, no parents in sight, and she grinned at Stephen and said, you know, the view is better from the top, and then she skipped away. Stephen came back to the table, fetched his two daughters, and took them to the top of the restaurant where they had a beautiful panoramic view. Just then, the same little girl approached them. See, I told you the view was better from the top, she said, and then she skipped away and they never saw her again. Mary Chapman writes, it was like God was saying, see, to my hurting, angry husband. The best view on everything we have going through, everything we are going through was from the top. A heavenly view. The eternal perspective we had to cling to with all that we have in us. This was the story that prompted me to title this sermon, A View from the Top. And that's the view I hope to give you today. This is what the prophets do. Through their writings, they aim to give us a view from the top. To show the people what God's view is. And then for us to live in light of this view. Malachi is doing the same. He's showing us God's view as well as a view of God's patience with Israel and ultimately all of his elect people through all the ages. One of the things I like about prophetic books is their bifocal nature. Now, some of you might have glasses or spectacles that are bifocal. They've got two lenses that allows you to read something close and also as you look up, you can see something far away. And this is very similar to what the prophets tend to do. If you read through prophecy, they have two lenses, a lens which looks closely, but also a lens which looks far off as you study scripture. And we see this bifocal language across time and people. Prophecies about Jesus in Psalm 22 talk about Christ's crucifixion, but they also speak from David's perspective as though it was David being crucified. Prophecies about the immediate future are often blended with prophecies about the far future. 
Events closer are clearer, whilst those far into the future are vague and out of focus, and they only become clearer the closer we get. We see this bifocal nature in chapter 3 of Malachi. The closer, more in-focus piece is verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This verse is pointing to John the Baptist as the messenger of Christ's arrival, and to the arrival of Jesus shortly afterward. But other verses in Malachi 3 and 4 now lift our eyes to the more distant future, focusing powerfully on judgment. They point to both the future judgment and destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, as well as a future judgment day and the return of Christ. We hear phrases like, Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. This theme of future judgment continues in chapter 4, where we hear phrases like, burning like an oven and set them ablaze. This judgment and reward theme is threaded throughout the whole Bible, and Malachi is no exception. God, through the prophets, His Word and His Holy Spirit continually calls us to repentance and a life of holiness. So for the remainder of my sermon, I'm going to focus on a view from the top, looking firstly at judgment and secondly at heaven. Colossians 3, 1-4 says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. This is a great verse to challenge us to keep focusing on our future home. And not on this temporary dwelling that we have here. But the promise of future glory has a qualifier in it. It says, if, if then you have been raised with Christ. The promise of heaven is not for everyone. You know, the first time I heard about how to get to heaven was when I was 15 years old. I was always under the impression, impression that when I died, I'd automatically go to this place called heaven. It was not until a religious instruction teacher told me that there was only one way to get to heaven. You must be born again. Well, I, like my fellow classmates, had a good laugh at what this lunatic was teaching us. But guess what? There is only one way to get to heaven. Look at what Christ says in John 14:6. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is an interesting tombstone epitaph which says, Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. An unknown passerby scratched these words on the tombstone. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> There's one final truth every one of you sitting here will not escape. No matter how often you try to ignore it, you are going to die. The question you are facing with this morning 
is what will your destination be? Will you face the judgment and anger of God for your lack of repentance? Or will you receive his love and rewards for a life of faith and obedience? The Bible tells us that because God is a God of justice and righteousness, he has reserved a time when he will judge all wickedness. And at that time, those whose sins are not forgiven will not be going to heaven. In fact, the Bible speaks of the destination of the unrighteous as a place of unquenchable fire and punishment. We see in Romans 3 verse 23 that hell is your default destination because you are born sinful. Your payment for offending a holy God is an eternity of separation from that God. And unless someone else pays the price for your offense against God, your destination will remain unaltered. Those who refuse to repent have both God's temporary anger and judgment to deal with, as well as an eternal future judgment and anger. Look at the strong language that Malachi uses to describe these judgments. In 3, 2 to 5, Jesus is referred to as a refiner's fire, putting the Israelites on trial and testifying against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers. In chapter 4, disobedience also has a long-term consequence of eternal judgment. Listen to these powerful and scary words. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Malachi calls this the great and awesome day of the Lord. God was angry because those that claimed to know him were not taking him seriously. Over and over again, God warns, yet Israel still disobeyed. What about you? Do you claim to know him, but not take him seriously? Is the Lord warning you around sins in your life, and still you disobey? Do you claim the promises of God, eternal life in heaven, but ignore the warnings and calls to obedience? Do you receive the many time, talent, and tithe blessings from God, but remain unfaithful in using these for God's kingdom in your tithe and service? This is what Malachi is tackling. Those that were happy to be called the nation of Israel and God's people, but did not take God seriously enough to obey him. We see this in the modern church. Many people happy to attend on Sunday, but do nothing else for the kingdom. Just as the Israelites brought lame offerings to the Lord, we bring half-hearted attempts at service and sacrifice for the Lord, preferring instead to invest our time and effort in worldliness and give God the scraps. Just as the Israelites were sinning by divorcing their wives and chasing after idols, we too are sinning by playing with sexual immorality through movies that we watch and the pornography that we expose ourselves to online. Just as Israel were robbing God, by not supporting the temple with their tithe. We too let pastors and missionaries go hungry because we need to cover excessive debt and entertainment payments before we give to the Lord. Just as the Israelites had lost their zeal for the things of God because they did not believe it benefited them in any way, so too has the modern church lost their first love for the holy things of God. 
Another book of prophecy uses some strong language for churches and people that have lost their zeal for God and are wishy-washy with their obedience to Him. Revelation 3 says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In the end, there is a terrible place reserved for those who arrive unrepentant at the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The Bible speaks of weeping and wailing as godless crowds stand before a holy God and answer for the deeds they have done. And just like these Israelites, your punishment will be in proportion to the light that you have received. The Israelites had the covenant. They had the promises, the law, and the blessings. Yet still they disobeyed. The same is true for us here in Australia, where we have unhindered access to the Bible. We have received plenty of light, so we are without excuse. Declared guilty before God, hell will consume the unforgiven forever. And don't be deceived, my friends, by those who teach error. Hell is forever. There is no escape. Randy Alcorn in his book about heaven says that by denying the endlessness of hell, we minimize Christ's work on the cross. If Christ's work did not deliver us from an eternal hell, his work on the cross is less heroic, less potent, less consequential, and thus less deserving of our worship and praise. For some of you here this morning, you may be thinking, what a load of rubbish. Only a fool will believe all of those things. But I want to say to you today, you will never understand the glories of the promises of heaven until you look through the pierced hands of Christ. Do you not know that all grace and mercy was put into the hands of Christ? For those of you who the Lord is speaking to today, listen carefully. Christ is the only Savior. He died for the sins of the world and rose again for the dead, for you. Whoever believes in Him will not perish in hell, but have everlasting life in heaven. Go and confess your sin to Him, and He will wash you and make you whiter than snow. If you feel you cannot repent, go to Him and tell Him, for it is a joy for Him to give repentance as well as forgiveness of sins. This is what Malachi is calling Israel to do. It's what he's calling you to do today. Repent. Turn back to the God who is full of wonderful promises. Verse 7 of our text, the Lord says, Return to me and I will return to you. But just reading about judgment without also focusing on the rewards is like watching only the first movie of The Lord of the Rings. Without ever seeing the end. Who does that? <laughs> you see, there's a reason the third book is called The Return of the King. For those of you that don't know, Luke was basically saying that The Lord of the Rings was the worst movie he's ever watched. And they couldn't make it through the first movie. Okay? I was deeply offended. <laughs> so, Luke, as a special Christmas gift, we've decided to loan you our extended version. <laughs> I'm pleased to say... It's over 30 hours of Lord of the Rings pleasure 
and we look forward to your report back. <laughs> all right, all jokes aside, judgment is a serious thing. And you may be feeling overwhelmed by some of the things I have shared with you this morning. So let me now share the good news about our future home. After pointing out that we were by nature deserving of wrath, Paul says in Ephesians 2.4, but God. Don't you love that? I love when you hear that saying, but God. It points to something greater, something that only God can do for you, a way to get right with God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, this is the beautiful picture of our future home. Going back to Malachi, he now paints the picture of heaven and rewards for those who the Lord calls his, his treasured possession. Malachi 4 verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. While judgment for the wicked will be like a furnace, for the righteous it will be like healing sunshine. The joy of those who are saved is compared to baby animals being released to play in a pasture. The image is meant to convey absolute delight and the elation of sudden freedom. The saints will celebrate the victory of God, and free from our bondage of sin, we will be released to frolic under the grace and love of our Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, when we talk about heaven, what do you imagine that will look like? What I've come to realize is that we don't talk enough about our future home. We can debate endlessly about the start of the Bible, creation versus evolution, but seemingly very little about the end of the Bible, our future home. Now, some people will try and use the verse from 1 Corinthians 2.9 to discourage our imaginings of what heaven could be like. Paul says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So they resign themselves to the view that heaven cannot be described, so don't even try. But if you look at the very next sentence, Paul says, These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So God has revealed a glimpse of heaven to us. Just as under the age of the prophets, like Malachi, there were types and shadows, but the majority of the people never saw Christ in them. So there are a great many different things in this age which are shadows of the next. I'm trying to imagine when Christ first arrived and he's coming in the future. Imagine there's a sun shining this way and there's a shadow falling backwards. And the first time Christ arrived, his shadow was falling backwards into the Old Testament. And there were hints to the, through the prophets of what Christ's return would look like. But it wasn't at all what the Jews expected. They wanted a conquering hero, and they got a suffering savior. So too in this age, 
Jesus' second coming is standing here, and his shadow falls back on us into this age. And there are hints throughout Scripture as to what that future could look like as well. Little flecks of gold hidden away that we can hold on to to imagine what God has in store for us. And it's in this shadow that we see those little hints, hinting it to the fullness of what heaven could be. These shadows are, however, not fully clear. They are dimly lit, but they are there in the Word, and with the Spirit's guidance, we can find them. I remember having my first real personal glimpse of heaven when I was a young boy of 12. I awoke to the sound of my dad crying. It was a terrible sound. I knew straight away what had happened. I had traveled the long and painful journey of watching my mom fight cancer for many years. It had developed to the point where her body was racked with the disease, and she was almost unrecognizable from the beautiful woman she once was. I knew that her fight had come to an end. I remember walking down the corridor towards her bedroom, filled with fear. So many unanswered questions in my mind. I remember holding her hand and being shocked at how cold it was already. Something my dad said to me that morning stuck in my mind. I believe it was a seed planted by the Lord that set me on a pathway. It was my first view of heaven. You see, my mom had told my dad, she must go. She sees a light. These were her last words. As a young 12-year-old, these words haunted and terrified me because I did not know what they meant. At that time, my mom was the only believer in our family. She was a very young believer, having turned to Christ during her long sickness. Before that moment, I can't recall ever being told the truth about our human condition, our need for a Savior, and that Jesus was that Savior. In fact, it was still another three more years before I sat in a school classroom and heard someone say that without Jesus, I would never go to heaven. It was still to be another seven years of searching before I surrendered to my Savior. As a Christian now, it's one of the things I look forward to in heaven, reuniting with loved ones again. No more pain, no more tears, no more loss, only joy. A few years later, I remember being mocked at university when I shared the promise of heaven with my fellow students. They joked that they would have far more fun having a barbecue in hell than being stuck in a permanent church service in heaven. To them, heaven, that did not sound like the good news at all. And to be honest, at the time, I was not equipped enough to correct that view. But surely we as Christians are meant to have a greater appreciation of our future home. Yet we are still so weighed down with the grind of our daily living. Why? Is it because we have a flawed view of heaven? An assembly of stories and discussions cobbled together to keep our hopes alive? Not only that, but we fail to communicate this hope correctly to the lost, resulting in images such as the one I saw in a Far Side cartoon, showing a man on a cloud with a harp in his hand, looking extremely bored. The bubble above his head says, wish I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> in my research on the topic of heaven, I was surprised to discover that a great deal has been written about eschatology, which is a study of the end times, but actually comparatively very little about heaven itself. For example, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a 900-page theology entitled Great Doctrines of the Bible and spent only two pages on the eternal future and the new heaven and new earth. 
Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology devotes 38 pages to creation, 40 to baptism and communion, but only 15 pages on what happens when we die, two pages on hell, and one page on heaven. Why does this topic of heaven get so little attention? One reason is satanic deception and distraction. Satan's lies keep us short-term and tactical, focused on the here and the now, so we have little capacity for the bigger picture. What better way for the devil to attack than to whisper lies about the one place we should have our hearts and our thoughts set upon? Satan doesn't need to convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He only needs to convince us that heaven is a place of mind-numbing, repetitive existence, robbing us of our anticipation and our hope. Another reason for much of the silence on the topic of heaven is the quality of life we experience as a nation. I would propose that Christians living in abject poverty and suffering persecution for their faith are more likely to long for heaven. Those who are experiencing too much pleasure on earth are inclined to believe that heaven can wait. Now all this raises the question, does scripture really have so little to say about our future home? There are some great poetic verses that give us some idea of our future home. Verses like Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But what about some practical pieces that we can hold on to that might give us a clearer picture of what these verses might be pointing to? I've chosen only a few to draw your attention to, but I'd encourage all of you to spend some time in exploration yourself, looking for these flecks of gold. You won't be disappointed. The first gem I want to point you to is that we as humans is what we as humans will be like in heaven. The Bible talks about a resurrection future. Just like Jesus has a resurrected body, so too will we. This is important for us, especially for those who are suffering and sick. For those of you who don't know, I've struggled with skin cancer for many years. I've had so much cut out of me now that I've turned it into a standing joke of I'm going to heaven one piece at a time. I confess I long for the day when my body will be whole and healed again. What about people like our brother Wayne, struggling with MS and its impact on his life? On his life? How much are you looking forward, brother, to having strength in your muscles again and being able to run and leap for joy? <laughs> I don't know everyone else's situations here, but I know that many of you are struggling with broken bodies and health problems. All of these ailments points to bodies that are not perfect. They are scarred from the fall and the curse that sits on creation. And even though we are saved, our bodies still carry the weight of that curse. But the beautiful message of the cross is that when Christ redeemed us, he did not only redeem our spirits, he redeemed us as whole persons. And this includes the redemption of our bodies. 
Paul describes our current and future bodies best in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Here, Paul calls our physical bodies a tent. It's a good description because the tent is a temporary dwelling, unstable and weak. In contrast, Paul describes our future resurrected bodies as a building. Our perishable, nature-bound bodies are not currently suited for our eternal home. But God will give us new bodies, capable of fully enjoying the glories of heaven forever. And just as we will have resurrected bodies, we will have a new earth to enjoy as well. Our future home won't be some spiritual place where we sit on a cloud and play our hops. It'll be a physical place, not a state of mind. The New Testament teaches this in a number of places. As an example, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many places or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus chose common physical terms to describe where he was going. Rooms, house, dwelling, places. He was providing a view of something tangible for us to look forward to, not some ethereal realm of disembodied spirits. He did this because humans with resurrected bodies are not suited for such a realm. What we are designed for is a place like God originally made for us earth. Verse 3 of John 14 closes it off nicely. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It is important for us to understand that heaven actually has a time and a place. I used to think of heaven outside of time, but only God is outside of time. Heaven is a place that he has created, and it has a past, a present, and a future. So what will our future heaven look like? In order to picture it, you don't need to look up into the clouds. You simply need to look around you and imagine what all of this will be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. Christian author Paul Marshall writes, Our destiny is an earthly one, a new earth, an earth redeemed and transfigured, an earth reunited with heaven, but an earth nevertheless. We long for what man first enjoyed, a free, incorrupt, untainted world where we lived in peace with one another, with the environment, with animals, and with God. We are desperately trying to get back what we lost in Eden. But God has not lost it. Throughout Scripture, we see evidence that God has not given up on His original creation. Scripture abounds with words that allude to this. Reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect. All of these words suggest a return to an original condition that was lost. Have you ever wondered why the Lord doesn't just destroy us and start again since he has the power to do so? It's because the Lord wants to restore us to what he intentionally created us for. So he seeks to restore both us and the earth to its original design at the Garden of Eden. Even Christ's work on earth was to restore. 
Almost all of Jesus' miracles, with the exception of cursing the fig tree, are miracles of restoration. So although this earth will pass away, the view here should be seen more as restored. If you read from Romans 8.21, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The image that Paul gives us of the world is not of an old man coughing and wheezing itself to destruction. But he gives us the image of birth pains and an ache to return to its former glory. Acts 3.21 says that Christ returned to heaven until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke. The picture here is that the old earth will pass away and come to an end, but not a final end. God has not changed his mind or fallen back to plan B, nor has he abandoned what he originally intended for us at the creation of the world. His original intention was for God and man to walk together and for heaven and earth to be together. Revelation 21, 3, 4 says, And I heard a great voice out of the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he shall dwell with them. And they shall be his peoples and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So although heaven and earth are now separated, our eternal home, the future heaven, will be merged, and God will dwell there with us. So when heaven and earth unite, what can we expect to find there? I see evidence in Scripture that God created earth in the image of heaven, just as he created mankind in his own image. In Hebrews 8.5, we learn that the earthly priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Often our thinking is backwards. Alcorn says, why do we imagine that God patterns heaven's holy city after an earthly city? As if heaven knows nothing of community, culture, and has to get its ideas from us. Is it not more likely that earthly realities, including cities, are derived from heavenly counterparts? We tend to start with earth and reason up towards heaven, when instead we should start with heaven and reason down towards earth. So when we read in Revelation imagery about cities, gold, jewels, streets, houses, gates, these are terms we are all familiar with because earth was a shadow of heaven. In Hebrews 13, 14, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. When you hear this term city, does that confuse you? No, it doesn't. We all understand what a city is. That it has buildings, culture, art, music, people, animals, gatherings, and conversations. In Hebrews 11:6, but as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. When I use the word country, what comes to mind? Citizens, rivers, mountains, trees, rolling green hills. If we can't imagine our present earth without these things, why would you try to imagine our future better earth without these things? So we have a new united heaven and a new earth prepared for us. We have a glorious new country prepared for us. We have a glorious city of gold prepared for us. And we have a resurrected body prepared and designed to live in this new earth. I know I've only, 
Oh, I've hardly done justice to the many images and promises that are in the Word. But hopefully you can take some time to think about and focus on our future home and live your lives in accordance with this reality. This is what Malachi is calling us to do. In light of judgment and our award in heaven, honor God, obey Him, love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In conclusion, there's one final image I want to leave with you. Heaven will be like going home. You know that sensation when you've been away for a while? I especially feel this because I travel a lot, especially overseas. You come home and it's dark, but on the other side of the door, the light is on. You hear the giggles of your family, the familiar sound of your wife and children. You have imagined what this moment will be like as you lay alone in some hotel room on the other side of the world. But as you open the door, that imagining does not do it justice. As you feel your heart in your throat, and as you see your family again face to face, you are home. That sense of relief and contentment is what heaven will be like. Heaven will be like going home. Where we will once again embrace our loved ones, see the face of the Lord, and enjoy unhindered fellowship with Him forever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we have heard from you this morning. We have heard about judgment and that great and terrible, dreadful day of the Lord. Lord, it will be great for those that love you and are redeemed by Christ. But Lord, it will be dreadful for those who do not know you, Lord. Lord, seated here this morning, there are some who do not know you. Some who choose to live their lives separated from you, in disobedience to you, in rebellion to you, Lord. Lord, speak to them this very day, Lord. Would you chastise them? Would you call them to you? Call them to your Son, the Lord Jesus, and save them, Father. Your word has power, and we know it can change the lives of people. So bless them as they leave. Bless everyone today as they leave. Thank you once again for the beautiful testimony of Lily and Monica as they shared their struggles, but Lord, more importantly, as they pointed to you and what you have done for them. We thank you for that and this wonderful time of worship today. Bless us now as we part. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless. God bless.